Peter. Okay, let's get in. I'm here. Mm-hmm. Hello, guys. We're back, and the session now begins. Uh, this is the Ontolog scheduled discussion session on November 3rd, year 2005. And we have for our topic today, uh, healthcare informatics landscapes, roadmaps, and blueprints towards a business case strategy for large-scale ontology projects. And this is take two of the same topic. It's a follow-up session from the highly successful session we had on August 25th, uh, 2005. Uh, Originally, uh, Rex Brooks, who had proposed the sessions and had co-organized this with Bob Smith uh, was supposed to be moderating for us. Uh, very unfortunately, Rex became hospitalized as of last Saturday, uh, so we should all wish him uh, that he gets well real soon because we need him back. And I would also like to thank Bob Smith for agreeing to take on the moderation of this session uh, in very, uh, on very short notice. So, it's all yours, Bob. Yeah, I like the way you call me a moderation as opposed to a, a moderator. There's a subtle semantic difference there. Basically, my role is um, you're the optimist. I look at the positive side of the world, and I've got a virtual um, gavel here, uh, kind of like a hammer, and I've got a timer. The timer goes from uh, five minutes to ten minutes. And hopefully, because we don't have uh, a large number showing up today, probably a lot of people listening in uh, later after the, uh, the prime time presentations to capture the, uh, the audio and the presentations that uh, just want to make sure we get the, uh, some of the key ideas and the uh, absolute moderator, the officer, <clears throat> moderate, I guess, uh, so the major objective is to identify the key landscapes at the healthcare standards, to clarify semantic interoperability issues among and between some of the key standards, and to identify an appropriate ontology strategy and commitment to a business uh, evaluation effort. What I'd like to do is start with Mark Musing's presentation and comments. The way Peter has been able to structure this, if you uh, scroll down to item number five, panelists prepare material, the first hour we'll catch up on the events that occurred since the last presentation, 825.05, and tickle some of the unanswered questions and issues. The second hour, we'll be dealing with more general questions and issues, kind of divided up into the international issues and intergovernmental business issues. And with that, um, Mark Mason, can we... uh, have your comments so far, please. Sure, thanks, Bob. Um, I want to apologize in advance. I was hoping to be on the, co- the entire call this morning, but uh, I'm going to be called away in about 20 minutes to a, a meeting I have to attend. 
but I wanted to have a chance to uh, let everyone know that actually there have been a number of things that have happened since uh, the last time we spoke on this topic. Uh, one is generic, uh, one is specific to biomedicine. Uh, the generic uh, issue is that, as, as many of you know, and as many of you were actually present, we had the kickoff meeting for the National Center for Ontological Research last week in Buffalo. And we're looking forward to an opportunity to use this uh, organization as an umbrella that can uh, provide a means for seeking funding for work in ontologies, but also as a way of interacting with ontologies in government and industry and academia and generically working to uh, make ontological research more prominent in the U.S. and to uh, provide a means for bringing together uh, people who are working in this area. I think one of the things that, that all of us recognize is that we're, a lot of us who do work in semantic integration and ontologies are in different niches, and what we need is to create uh, a means for getting critical mass, and we're hoping that NCOR will provide that opportunity. That's the, the first piece of good news over the past uh, six weeks, I guess. Uh, the other piece of good news is something which I couldn't disclose when we were talking last on this subject, but I'm really very excited that uh, the National Institutes of Health has awarded a grant to create one of the three new national centers for biomedical computing, uh, specifically in the area of biomedical ontologies. Uh, so you'll, you'll hear from Chris Schutt in a little bit. Chris is one of the major participants in this initiative, along with uh, myself, uh, people at Berkeley, uh, Barry Smith at Buffalo, as well as driving biological projects that involve people at UCSF, uh, University of Oregon, and, and Cambridge. Uh, Peggy Story, who's at the University of Victoria in Canada, also was involved uh, in a way in regarding the, the technology we're we'll be developing. Uh, so we've, we're about to create the National Center for Biomedical Ontology. Um, and for those, I don't have slides that accompany this, this discussion, but uh, our website, which is bioontology.org, and bioontology is all one word without a dash, uh, provides a lot of background information about our center. I think what is probably most remarkable to those of us who are involved in this work is that not only has the NIH uh, created this, this national resource for biomedical ontology, but just the idea that uh, NIH would be have such enthusiasm for funding anything with the word ontology in the title just seems absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Um, and in fact, we sort of have learned uh, indirectly that we're considered a hot property and that there are just a large number of, uh, of uh, personnel at NIH and a lot of, a lot of institutes that are particularly optimistic about the kind of work that our center will do. So I should let folks know we're, we're not a center that's going to create the next generation of controlled terminologies in medicine. We're not actually chartered to develop new content, but we are chartered to create technology to make that content much more accessible. And that means not only clinical ontologies and controlled terminologies that will be accessible through the Mayo technology that you'll, you'll hear about later, uh, but also biological ontologies. So we really are going to run the gamut from the biological to the clinical, and I think that's going to be very exciting. Uh, and so we obviously are just getting started. Uh, we don't have anything to show except an organization, a website, and a logo and an acronym that we fiercely debate. But we are very excited about uh, 
our next five years of funding and the ability to uh, bring together, I think, some of the most important groups in uh, biomedical ontology in the country in an effort to create a, uh, a structure that will lead not only to uh, technology to make ontologies more useful in healthcare, but also uh, some outreach activities that I think will encourage the healthcare community to uh, be able to build better ontologies and to use ontologies in a more productive way. So I'll stop there and I'll obviously uh, take questions from anyone. You mentioned outreach activities? Yes, and one, one of the things that's very exciting about these national centers is that not only are they uh, chartered to create technology, but also to disseminate that technology and to help people use it. And so primarily uh, through the direction of Barry Smith's group with lots of contributions from the rest of us, uh, we will be holding uh, workshops that ultimately will be uh, designed to help people learn about the center's technology and how to use it. And in the meantime, we'll have the major thrust of teaching about ontology, about ontological principles, and best practices for building good ontologies. In fact, in May, there's going to be uh, an outreach activity, which actually will be in Germany at uh, the Dijkstuhl Conference Center, which is sort of the, the primary information technology center for um, academic conferences in, in Germany, and that will bring together a lot of our European colleagues and hopefully some folks from North America as well. And we're planning other kinds of events down the road where we hope to be able to invite people who are building ontologies and provide an opportunity to have people in the same room examine some of the modeling decisions made, critique the choices, and talk about alternatives. Mark, you should mention the R01 uh, option as well. Yes, thanks, Chris. Uh, as is the case with all the National Centers for Biomedical Computing, um, NIH has a mechanism for collaboration with, the, with all the centers, and obviously our Center for Biomedical Ontology is, is, is eagerly soliciting people who will want to collaborate with us and, and use NIH funds as a way of doing that. Uh, there is a mechanism in place whereby we would want people who have projects that might build on the center's resources or take advantage of the center's personnel to contact us as soon as possible. There's an RFA that's out, and uh, if you go to the website for the, the center, you'll be able to get a link to the RFA from NIH. Uh, essentially, NIH is requiring a letter of intent in December and proposals that will be due January 17th at least for this round, and there'll be future rounds uh, we anticipate. And so this is going to be a, a really wonderful opportunity for people we hope to come out of the woodwork and propose ways in which they could interact with the whole center staff. We're obviously trying to really stress outreach, not only in terms of these workshops, but also in terms of our, our ability to collaborate with as many of our, our friends and colleagues as possible, and our, our new friends and colleagues. And so that's, that's a major uh, focus of our work. Um, Mark, a question is Pat. Um, uh, in, in any of the um, existing contemplated projects, uh, do any of them include building an application that involves um, inferencing and reasoning and, and beyond just the question of uh, querying the ontological database itself? Well, I, I think all of us, not all of us, most of us who are involved in the center are using ontologies and other research activities. Our, our particular center grant uh, does not involve building systems that use ontologies for reasoning or decision support. Uh, but we would certainly welcome uh, people who want to collaborate with us and use ontologies in those kinds of applications, which would certainly complement some of the other research activities that uh, 
center personnel are, are engaged in? Well, um, uh, I think it would be re extremely helpful to have um, multiple uh, applications using the same ontology uh, for comparison purposes. Absolutely, Pat. I, I, I think one of the things that we want to be able to do is not only have applications that sort of demonstrate the importance of, of, of ontologies, but as you suggest, having ways in which we can begin to evaluate ontologies in some sort of a concrete way. I think one of the things that worries us is that we see ontologies blossoming as a way of dealing with decision support problems or doing natural language processing or data integration. Uh, but at the same time, we don't really have good metrics for ontology evaluation uh, other than sort of face validity. And any way that we can do that, either through new kinds of peer review mechanisms or through uh, reference models or standard applications would be wonderful. And in the event that grants are given for applications that use ontologies, is it contemplated that it will be required that those applications be made public so others can examine them and see how they work? Uh, well, NIH, I mean, I mean the details. Yeah, NIH, as far as the center is concerned, has very strict requirements, which are consonant with the way that we've worked in the past, that all of our software be made available in some sort of open framework. Okay. Uh, I don't know whether those requirements apply to <coughs> collaborating projects, but certainly it would be in the interest of collaborating projects to, to use that kind of a, a mechanism so that people can actually get their hands on the work and, and, and use it. I should also mention that the uh, means by which these collaborating grants will be issued is really in the control of NIH. So uh, the center obviously needs to evaluate projects, make sure that those projects are constant with the center's goals and that the center's personnel will be available to uh, contribute and to help out with the collaborating projects. But ultimately, the awards that are made will be based on uh, review groups at NIH and the programmatic needs of the NIH institutes. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Mark, uh, one, one question. Uh, you mentioned something, uh, uh, some program in Germany. Could you repeat the date again, roughly? You know, I, now I, I thought you would ask me that, and I'm realizing I don't have the date in front of me. Uh, roughly the month? The end of May. End of May. May 21 through 24. God, you're so good. <laughs> well, I got to say that. <laughs> May 21 through 24, 2006, right? 2006, right. And there's information about that on our website, which obviously is not in front of my nose right now. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks, Bob. What I'd like to do now is go through the attendees, the participants, and uh, simply ask the question of uh, who are you, where you're from, and what do you really want to get out of this conference, uh, out of this session, in terms of uh, expectations, interests, or principles. And I'd like to start with... Uh, uh, Mark, and go through the list of attendees up there towards the top of the uh, wiki page. Okay, be be before we start with Mark, can I ask, I mean, who's, who is already online, uh, who cannot see your name up there under the attended list? So did anyone join us since we last? Uh, Tim here? Cook. Tim Cook? Oh, hi. Yeah. Tim. All right. Okay, Tim's the only one. Uh, Mark, back to you. Mark. Uh, Mark Wine. Uh, Mewson. Mewson. I'm just going down the list. Mewson, actually. 
think he hung up. Oh, okay. All right. So. No, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, I'm sorry, Mark. Try to get rid of me quickly, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm on the faculty in the Department of Medicine at Stanford, uh, also with a courtesy appointment in computer science, and uh, I've done work for a long time in the area of decision support and knowledge-based systems, which has led me to the area of ontologies as a way of dealing with a number of issues, including structuring knowledge bases for decision support, uh, building electronic patient records, and uh, data integration. So I guess I guess some of the major uses of ontologies. And um, uh, as you just heard, um, I'm moving in a direction where I'm, I'm hoping to start uh, helping to contribute to a, a national infrastructure that will make use of uh, ontologies particularly uh, valuable to people in biomedicine. Thank you, Mark. I'm Bob Smith, the moderator, and I'm a professor emeritus at the California State University at Long Beach, and right now I'm a patient. I'm in bed and in bed hospitalized, and I desperately would like to see personal health information systems and these ontologies uh, evolve and get through HL7 to uh, RIM4 or further. I sure would like to see ICD-11 as opposed to ICD-10, as I understand it, what we're dealing with right now, ICD-9. I'm involved with uh, triage, medical triage, and obviously there's a huge opportunity and a need after Katrina and the recent emergency responses to have uh, boots on the ground that know how to triage that's well informed by health standards on up into uh, the work that Mark Mason just described. So that's Bob. Chris, uh, shoot. Yeah, I'm uh, an internist and an epidemiologist. I'm presently uh, chair of biomedical informatics here at Mayo Clinic, uh, and I've been sort of living at the intersection of clinical epidemiology research studies and the advent, if you will, of genomic medicine. We're recognizing that it's the data representation problem that really underpins this whole thing, and as a consequence, I moved into the standards world some time ago. I'm presently co-chair of uh, the HL7 Vocabulary Committee. In fact, we're hosting a joint meeting as we speak here in Rochester of HL7's uh, vocab and modeling uh, groups. I'm also uh, a board member on the new uh, Health Information Technology Standards Panel uh, formed under one of uh, uh, Secretary Levitt's uh, uh, grants uh, to ANSI in this case uh, for data harmonization and a whole bunch of other standards committees that I won't bore you with. You're right, my cortex, <laughs> this vortex. That's great. Peter? Okay. Peter Yim. I'm uh, one of the co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum, uh, along with uh, Kurt Conrad and Leo Oberst. And we've been around for three and a half years now. Uh, in my sort of commercial life, I am CEO of CIM3.
and I'm sitting in for him. Um, I'm primarily interested today in just learning more about uh, the healthcare informatics landscape, although I don't have a lot to contribute to understanding that. I wanted to hear what people had to say about that. Thank you. We really appreciate your uh, uh, activities, you and And we'll move on to landscape. Kurt Conrad. Uh, thanks, Bob. Um, I'm an independent consultant here in the Bay Area, and uh, one of the areas I have a lot of interest in is in identifying systematic approaches for uh, articulating and dealing with the various management issues that are associated with ontology-based solutions. So I find all these conversations to be eminently, importantly useful. Thanks. Thank you. Good. Seth? Is Seth Lewis missed? You may be Mark on Wine. Yes, this is Mark Wine, and again, good afternoon. I'm with the GSA headquarters, Office of Intergovernmental Solutions, and my role is coordination of intergovernmental health information technology. Um, I'm focusing on knowledge sharing, uh, coordinating and supporting uh, health IT communities of practice, and uh, identifying and uh, supporting coordination of collaborations, collaborative partnerships for health IT initiatives, activities, projects um, that are uh, in align with um, the nationwide missions, goals, and, uh, and practices. Uh, I've, uh, I, I'm coordinate. I'm participating as a member of the FHA, CHI Council at HHS. Um, I've uh, participated going back all the way to the beginning of the Consolidated Health Informatics uh, Standards Development. I'm participating in the ANSI uh, Health Information Standards Panel work group, one of the work groups. Um, I'm involved in uh, coordinating with RIOs, uh, including the RIO Federation that the Health Information Management Systems Society has uh, uh, begun to develop and implement. And I've been um, conducting liaison activity with uh, various significant stakeholders, uh, such as Medicaid, uh, that will be having its uh, annual state Medicaid directors conference uh, next week. Um, I'll participate in a roundtable discussion there uh, with an objective to listening and learning about what are the Medicaid directors' interests in particular, what are their needs and gaps uh, for uh, where support and coordination across governments and building partnerships could help them cost-effectively uh, develop health information systems and uh, electronic health record interfaces. Uh, that's a little bit about my background. Um, my overall Long-term focus is in federal health systems uh, policy planning and development. I'm also I uh, underscore the I'm coordinating the uh, health IT ontology project group, the federal high top, and I'll be making a presentation a little bit later in this discussion on the first meeting that high top held to. Um, outline its uh, approach
approach to a mission and strategies. Great. Thank you, Thank you very much, Mark. Brian Neiman. Is Brand with us? Yes, excuse me. I uh, didn't have the uh, earpiece up close enough. Yes, I'm Brand Neiman with the Environmental Protection Agency. I also chair the Federal CIO Council's Semantic Interoperability Community Practice. And last week I was asked to uh, serve on the uh, NCOR uh, Executive Committee, and I'm looking forward to that. Thank you. And Pat Cassidy? Yeah, hi. I'm Pat Cassidy. I work at MITRE. I've been concerned with ontologies, domain and upper, mostly concerned with upper ontologies. I, my current focus outside of MITRE is as chairman of the um, <coughs> Ontology Taxonomy Coordinating Working Group, which is a working group of the semantic and probability community of practice. And my concern, uh, generally as well as with health, is that um, any ontologies that are being developed coordinate very tightly the uh, higher level concepts that they use so that the, that will enable them to interoperate with each other. And uh, to that extent, anything I can do, I'll be happy to, in coordination with anyone else who's working on these things. Great. Thank you, Pat. And Gary Vesolio? Uh, hi. I'm also from uh, MITRE Corporation. Um, I actually work in um, a technical center in, in, uh, in a DOD, FFRDC, and I'm just trying to spin up on, um, on healthcare informatics. Thanks. Thank you, Gary. And Pat Honig? Oops, I'm on mute. I'm Pat Heinig. I'm uh, with the Environmental Protection Agency also. Um, I'm a senior enterprise architect working at the departmental level. I'm also um, consulting with one of the um, offices here on emergency response architecture and um, <clears throat> belong to the CIO Council and trying to represent semantic technologies and ontology in general to that body much as uh, much as Brand is doing also. I'm uh, getting ready to participate as a co-chair of the Federal Health Architecture's uh, Data Architecture Working Group, uh, as that working group is just now starting up. And of course, uh, from an EPA health standpoint and health strategy, um, I try to keep up with where the ontology field is going and how it would apply in this area. Thank you. Thank you. Pat and Jim Cook. Uh, yes, I'm a principal with Chase Health Informatics Incorporated. I'm representing here today the PATH Research Group at the University of British Columbia, as well as the Architecture Review Board for the OpenEHR Foundation. Okay, well, thank you very much, Tim, and uh, thank you to everybody. Looks like we've got a very good representation of the health information um, landscape, at least a good chunk of it. Uh, any other questions, uh, opportunity, we can move otherwise into Chris Schutz's uh, presentation. If you go up towards the top, uh, the first hour, click on Chris Schutz's presentation. Chris, it's all yours, sir. Thanks a lot. I, what I wanted to focus on uh, was this whole question of interlocking reference terminologies and how uh, ontologies can really cross-share 
Uh, if you look at the second slide, the understanding of the clinical process, this is simply a notion that, gosh, and then if you click the little thingy, uh, everything begins with patient information. We go to medical knowledge, and if we're very clever, we can reinsert that knowledge back into practice. So it creates a wheel, if you will, of continuous knowledge. And the question invariably is, what holds that wheel together? Um, and we've got a bunch of junk in the middle there, shared semantics, ontology, vocabulary. I mean, it's all the same thing at the end of the day. It's consistent content representation, uh, consistent concept representation, uh, and that's what ontologies are good at, uh, at least if we use them uh, thoughtfully. The third slide, the whole continuum thing, um, that's what I call the chasm of despair. Uh, and it's essentially uh, an illustration, a, a fairly cartoonish one, of activity and uh, productivity on the two poles of the informatic spectrum. That is to say, in basic science, with things like the gene ontology and the, uh, the efforts that Mark Musen's uh, new center is very, very tightly integrated with. And on the uh, right-hand side in the green space, with clinical medicine, the SNOMEDs and the LOINCs and the other sorts of things that uh, Mark's center, of course, is, is uh, embracing. Uh, but it's how you make these two sides work together so that as you introduce, say, genomic concepts into clinical practice, the clini clinical side doesn't go reinvent the gene ontology or, or something equally uh, silly. Um, so this is a whole question on slide four of uh, science and communication as language. And it gives you a few examples here on invoking concepts that are out of domain on that third bullet. And an example is LOINC. LOINC, as many of you may know, is a, a system for clinical tests and uh, test naming and the like. Well, you might have drug sensitivities, or you might have uh, other uh, references to drug levels. And it begs the question, if you're going to build an ontology that references drug concepts, where do the drugs come? from. And, and right now, of course, they come from whole cloth. They don't cross-reference to the NDFRT or to some other, uh, to Rx norm or to other uh, emerging ontologies that might have drug names. And by analogy, in SNOMED, or for that matter, MESH, uh, <coughs> we refer to anatomy concepts and we reinvent them. So the whole premise of cross-sharing ontologies is that there would begin to emerge something akin to the foundational model of anatomy out of Seattle, Cornelius Rossi's effort, which would define, say, a canonical representation of anatomy that would be used by SNOMED, that would be used by gene ontology, that would be used by these other things. Um, and you get into this whole question of composition and small information models. The Another dichotomy that's occurred, and we've recognized it in spades in clinical ontologies, is this issue of granularity and detail. And, and there are all kinds of ways that you can carve up the universe, but it's the, uh, is a DRG bad for you, or is a SNOMED term actually better? And the answer, of course, is they're both useful. They both have their use cases. The, the point of this slide, number five, is to show that they exist along a continuum. Um, and with, with great cleverness, um, if we uh, look at the next slide, number six, we see a field of observations, all those little plus signs, triangles, and circles. Imagine they are instances of a patient observation on Mrs. Smith um, or Mrs. Jones or Mrs. Somebody. Um, and the idea is how do we re-aggregate those events into decisions categories or public health bioterrorism categories or reimbursement ICD-9-CM kinds of categories or whatever. Uh, and this whole question of how you apply logic rules and aggregation rules to 
accumulating or joining or operating on more detailed, granular, we call it, representations in a clinical space to a high-level summary or classification space without saying that uh, classifications are bad or terminologies are bad and, and you just uh, sort of coexist. The content versus structure, number seven, um, this simply points out that uh, we, have, we live in a world where concepts and their meaning can be profoundly altered by their context. And the illustration here is in the bottom side, you've got an information model in blue with heart disease in a box. And the label on that box, of course, is family history. And the point is that this is a trivial information model that profoundly changes the semantics of what is in the box. And it's simply recognizing that when we talk about ontologies, particularly in a clinical information space, we have to recognize that they occur in a larger context and that their semantics and meaning are often determined by the information model in which they exist. The, the top side of the um, uh, chart is simply showing that, you, gosh, you get the same compositional kinds of issues where you're, you're dealing with compositional phrases that modify the semantics. Uh, the eighth slide simply shows some example, real-world examples drawn from the HL7 reference information model and the SNOMED clinical terminology model, where they're both talking about the same darn thing, in one case using an information model paradigm and the other case using a terminology paradigm or an ontology paradigm. And which is right? Well, they're both right. Uh, but if we're going to have consistency and interoperable semantics, it's useful to get that concept straight. Um, so then the, the ninth slide, and I think this is near my last slide, uh, is the whole notion of saying, well, what, if we're going to have these reference ontologies, where do we stop? And the example I use here is the name of an enzyme, sulfonyltransferase. It doesn't matter what it is. But it's simply recognizing that that enzyme exists in all mammals, and they're slightly different. Um, and that even in a human being, work that we've done in pharmacogenomics here at Mayo has illustrated that there are probably 12 or 13 sulfotransferases in the human genome. Um, and then you get into the whole problem of SNPs, or single nucleotide polymorphisms, where you know a sulfotransferase in me may not be exactly the same as a sulfonyltransferase in, in Mark Musen. Um, uh, so what is truth? It gets to hurt the brain. Um, the whole question of uh, this last slide um, is uh, promoting the notion of a common interchange format. And the LexGrid model, which is referenced on the bottom, is, is very tightly partnered with Mark Musen Center uh, and the CBIO Center that I reference. And it's, if, if we've got all these vocabularies and ontologies kicking around, how do we cross-link them? How do we interlink them? How do we deal with versions over time? How do we deal with standard software calls or common terminology services? which is the HL7 specification that I reference here, now an ANSI standard. Uh, so building a web of terminology so that the very notion of cross-linked, cross-walked, integrated terminologies is sustainable in a grid-like format uh, on the internet, and that terminologies are there sort of kind of when you need them. We begin to think of an ontology as a web resource in the same way that we think of Google uh, to really begin to have harmonization so the semantic web effectively can be brought forth in a, in a scalable way. Uh, I think that's five minutes. That's great. I might point out the, uh, I heard Mark Musen describe a, the logo as a discussion item. Well, actually, that's the C-Bio logo he was talking about. I, I, 
there was some banter on the, the email about whether we should throw the LexGrid logo up here. I opted not to do that, just not to confuse the universe. You can see it at LexGrid.org if you're dying to see it. Um, but it, it's really this question of, of the, the premise behind the LexGrid uh, is, is the interlinkage of standards and, and content and, and, uh, and um, information. And I think the, the discussion Mark Musen was referencing was the CBIO logo, a slightly different logo. Yeah, I like that LexGrid logo with the uh, 3D Venn diagram. Right, of right. Standards, content, and what's the third one? I'm blanking. Uh, I suppose I could go look at it, but... Uh, anyway, that's, it's... Uh, tools. Tools, thank you. Tools! Yeah, I saw a huge connection with uh, several of the other presentations as uh, an important part of the landscape and the uh, development of standards. Any other questions to uh, Dr. Shoot? By the way, this is David Witten. I got finished with my problem, so I'm available to be here. Great, David. We'll um, have an introduction for you a little bit later. Okay. Any other questions for uh, Dr. Shoot? Okay, how about Conrad Bach. Conrad, you ready? Uh, sure. Um, make sure. Um, I'm sorry. Hang on just a sec. Sure. Let everybody else bring it up, and then I can bring mine up. The version on the DNC server is up to. Um, I'm not entirely sure this is on topic, but um, it, it does concern, I guess, if we're talking about uh, roadmaps and that sort of things, uh, uh, an area that I think is important to address somewhere along it. <coughs> and it's uh, generally around what kind of languages um, subject matter experts would uh, are most suitable for them. So going to the uh, second slide, um, I was looking at the transcript from the last session, and I noticed uh, Mark Neeson's comments um, about the NCI infrastructure and about Arden. And uh, the message I got from that, which uh, hopefully that's actually what he meant, but the, what I got from that is that um, there's a bottleneck around getting the information from the, uh, the expert with the knowledge into the machine. And that NCI has this bottleneck around these highly trained specialists. Uh, Arden, although widely adopted in some circles, actually doesn't have enough content to be useful. Um, and to me, this is the key obstacle, or one of the key obstacles to the success of ontologies. Um, and it's the same one actually faced by expert systems um, uh, since their heyday in the 80s and to my knowledge, actually was never overcome. Going to the third slide. Um, I guess having spent uh, a few years here at NIST among uh, manufacturing engineers, I've uh, really come to think that um, subject matter experts don't easily adapt to existing knowledge languages. Um, I even when I've tried to, and I've spent quite a bit of those years training them. 
uh, even when they're trained, they, they, it's, uh, it's uh, a bit of a square peg in a round hole. And so um, my general perception of why this is is that the existing knowledge languages are uh, really based and or originate in computer programming, and that they were adapted for subject matter expert use, but not really with a lot of attention to the mental models that, that experts really have. Can I ask at this point, this part, um, have you attempted to use any kind of controlled English for uh, information input from SMEs? Uh, there is some work going on that, that I'm aware of, um, but I'm not sure what the results are yet. Um, I guess I'm thinking of the kinds of knowledge languages that are uh, uh, typically called that. Well, OWL was quite hopeless from the point of view of perspicuity, of course. Yeah. Well, even uh, even the present, I guess I should refer not necessarily to specific languages as they look on the screen, but they have a set of concepts that they're organized around. And maybe there's user, quote, user-friendly interfaces that let you talk, look at that interface, look at that particular syntax. It's a set of concepts around them that uh, I, I think are not suited. Um, but I'll go on, and maybe this will become a little more clear in the next, next slide. Um, and that's slide five? That would be slide four. Slide four. Uh, for example, um, the notion of classes, uh, which regardless of syntax or user interface in which that concept is presented, is, I find is very confusing to subject matter experts, even though it's quite natural for computer scientists. Um, my perception of it is that and I'm a computer scientist myself, uh, uh, is that it's really originated in allocating and parsing blocks of memory. And if you look at a computer program and the decorations of the classes, that's what they're for, to determine the shape of memory and how you access it. Um, you don't find the notion of class in conventional logic. Um, I think this might surprise a lot of people, but the set and predicates that you see as, say, the semantics of OWL, they don't have properties. In fact, OWL can be looked at as sort of its own sort of ontology separate from logic that just happens to be mapped into logic as, as the uh, first order logic as the semantics. But wouldn't, wouldn't the Aristotelians disagree with you? I mean, the whole notion of Aristotelian classes, which have properties and attributes, I thought was the origin, not so much parsing blocks of memory. Well, um, maybe that's sort of a matter of the history of the, this particular history, I think that was layered on afterwards. The actual, uh, the well, anyway, this is actually a matter of interpretation of history rather than the, the, the specific content of, of what uh, I'm trying to say here. But m my perception is that these things were invented by computer scientists who were familiar with computer languages. And that later on, it was sort of adapted in this way for uh, subject matter experts. Um, Maybe we should come back to that particular that particular point. Um, I've found, and a number of my colleagues here, and uh, I found that SMEs tend to focus on instances and relations between sets of instances defined by navigating properties, that is, roles. They tend, that, that SMEs really think in, in terms of in terms of roles. Uh, and uh, to explain what that what that means, I, why don't we go on to the next slide? slide five. Um, this is an example that just happens routinely. Um, 
and that everyone deals with when they're when they are trying to build uh, models of classes that have any uh, of anything that has, has some structure, uh, whether it's in this case I'm talking about uh, engineered um, mechanically engineered artifacts, but they could be electromechanical, they could be anatomical, they could be molecular. Um, in fact, later I'll give a, just a little story about someone who came here with doing this with molecules. But this is uh, this is written in this picture is in UML, but it could be OWL, it could be any. Uh, it's in the UML class diagram. It could be in any class-based language, uh, and it shows like a typical breakdown. You might want to uh, assemble these parts into uh, a whole. So you want to assemble an engine and a wheel into a car, propeller and engine into a boat. Well, when you try to do that with class diagrams uh, or any kind of class-based language, you get this situation where you see all these things that happen. There's stuff in the blue at the bottom, all the all the kind of things that happen that you didn't expect. Uh, you find that you have wheels, because of the way this is set up, you have wheels powered by engines and boats. Uh, you have power to wheels on in one car. You're being delivered to the wheels on another car. So the engine in one car is hooked to the wheels in another. The same the same side on the boats. The, the boats, the propellers are powered by engines and cars. And you have wheels on cars, on boats, that sort of thing. So. Uh, this is, anyone actually tries to apply class-based modeling alone into uh, this kind of structured object modeling, which is so prevalent, you know, runs into this. Uh, and if you look at the sixth slide, this is kind of a, a what, uh, if, you're, if you really insist on using, you might try to uh, kind of figure a way around it in class modeling. Uh, it still doesn't work. You kind of uh, specialize all these things or property restrictions in OWL, and you try to make boat engines only hook to propellers and that sort of thing. You still end up actually it doesn't cover all the constraints you wanted because this, even this complicated structure still allows the engine in my car to power the wheels in someone else's car. Is that because they're not doing any individual level or instance level reasoning? They're only doing class level reasoning? Right. The, the essential problem is that uh, the classes and instances aren't bound together in any way, uh, which is where I come back to the classes as a memory map. Uh, when you look at an ordinary computer program and you see the class definitions, they, of course there's no instances because you're writing your program. The instances are at runtime. They're completely separate. And your definition of your class and the things about it, you can't refer to the instances. Mm -hmm. So that's that, a way to refer, refer to things that you created at runtime. Uh, right, in the definition of the class. Exactly. Um, so uh, to illustrate that, let's move on to seven. Actually, uh, uh, that'll be illustrated over the next few slides. But so on slide seven is an example of what I would think of more like an, S, uh, an SME viewpoint. This happens to be in the UML2 composition diagrams. Um, the, this embodies all the constraints that eliminate all those weird things that were happening in the class diagram before because basically it contextualizes everything. With that little box that has the colon engine on it means an engine as it's used in each particular instance of car. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean engines in general. It doesn't mean car engines. It means each engine as it's used in an instance of car. And what this, so what this then diagram end up, ends up meaning is that in each car, there is uh, that instance of engine is hooked to the two wheels that are in that same car. And now that's constraints, uh, then uh, all the things you wanted out of the class diagram you actually get here in a, in a rather simple way. Um, if you go to slide 8, you, I just showed a little mapping between the, 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 what I, the SME view and 
the uh, computer science view, and uh, you see what this red mark is supposed to indicate what's missing. That is, you're trying to show that there's a constraint on what happens when you navigate from the individual car to its engines. What's the object that plays the engine role? What's the object that plays the wheel role in this particular car? And you're talking about a link between those two things you found by navigating from the same car. And those relations between sets of instances, which is really what that is, which from a computer science point of view is kind of hard to say. It's kind of long. It's, it involves a rule. It's, it's, uh, it's actually quite intuitive and simple for subject matter experts. And, they, and when they look at the diagram at the top, they, they know what that means uh, without much more explanation. And this little diagram took me, when I was talking to system engineers, they're the kind of people who organize large projects like rockets and, and airplanes. And um, it took me a couple years to get this mapping across to them because they were they're making a UML profile. And if they had just stayed at the top level view and didn't want to understand everything about UML, they would have been OK. But they wanted to understand everything. So I had to understand the <laughs> class diagram, and we had to under explain what all of this mapping is about. Is, is this the basic difference between saying uh, every cat has its own tail and saying every cat has the same meow? Yeah, it's sort of like that. Like the second thing you said would be like class cat is related to class of sound meow. Right. Whereas the first thing you said was more like, actually, let's go to slide nine. It's more like what you just said. It turns out that um, uh, the SME view is actually quite close to uh, the logical view. Because when you write out a first order logic statement, you bind, you can't write the first order logic statement without talking about the instances and the classes or predicates at the same time. So if you look at uh, this mapping, uh, it's much more straightforward. This box, this at the top, there's this car, which is a class. But what we're really talking about is not the class, but uh, each instance, a prototypical instance. And you see that the little arrow that's pointed down to the car predicate. Uh, is essentially grabs one of those instances, every instance, the prototypical instance. It then starts navigating down. This is this exist stuff. It starts navigating down and finding the the instances which are the engines in that prototypical instance and that sort of thing. And then you get down to the power statement, which is the thing that's missing in the class diagrams, where you're actually linking the things that play the role in each individual car to the things that play another role in the individual car. So. Um, I've actually found that these class-based models uh, are actually sandwiched between two groups that have existed for much longer and actually have, have, a, have uh, their own way of thinking about things that, that binds concepts together rather than takes them apart. And one is uh, first-order logic, which has been around quite some time, and uh, the engineering disciplines uh, which have also been building things forever. It's only more recently that uh, there's in the ejection of this this rather single-minded class notion. I'm not against classes in general. Just a single-minded class notion that's sort of been injected into in between them, and I think it just doesn't work so well for them. Uh, have you had uh, this part again? Have you had an opportunity to um, see how concept uh, subject matter experts? use concept maps. Uh, I've heard that some of them like those diagrams. Um, no, I haven't. I'll have, to, I'll have to look at that. What I recall of concept maps is that they're still doing class-level kind of logic instead of instance-level logic. 
Well, um, I guess Pat Hayes down in Florida is working as, uh, with concept maps and translations of those into OWL, and mm -hmm. I think he, he understands first of all logic really good. <laughs> I, think, I, think native, I think it is a native language. I think you're probably right. <laughs> well, there are uh, visual, there are uh, languages that um, you might be considered visualizations of logic in this way of binding the instances and the classes together. I guess I'm sort of referring to the sort of mainstream KR, KL languages, yeah. you know, more than the outliers. We should look more at the outliers. I mean, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, and, and the, I think the, there are variants of um, logical language, of first order logic, the, the uh, controlled Englishes that make this even more intuitive than it looks in, in slide nine. Yeah, the ones that I've seen actually do this interesting thing where um, when they use the same word more than once, and in each case it's referring to what in, in logic would be a different variable, they put a little number next to it. So if they use that same word again, and what they mean is that object which was referred to before by the same word in another place in a sentence, they use the same same number. Sure. So there's tricks like that, I think, that help uh, basically disambiguate the English. Right. When there's one, and when there's only one, uh, you, you, you could use the little things like uh, back references like that or Gentlemen, can I uh, interrupt and uh, suggest, Pat, can you hold your questions a little bit? We've got a little bit of a time constraint, sir. Okay, I'm almost done. Uh, the next slide was just about, it uh, was just one on rules, which I think fall into the same kind of difficulty. Um, <coughs> my sense, and again, this is the side comment about uh, more historical, uh, to me they arose mostly to simplify procedural control structures. Uh, they introduced a lot of their own control problems, uh, but in any case, uh, to try to, to deal with complicated procedural control and, and to break it up. Um, again, they are present in conventional logic, because convention, uh, logical implication includes the contrapositive. It's a really very different thing from what the uh, prologue rules or uh, the, the uh, logic programming or that sort of thing. Um, they're also not present, as, as far as I can tell, in, in, in SME discussions, at least not by themselves. They're always embedded in some kind of procedure where there's a particular context in which you make a decision or something like that. Um, and if we were to look into stuff like this, uh, my suggestion would be to look at languages where the rules and processes are comparable or even in the same syntax, uh, like uh, the planner-like languages allow queries and assertions in any order. So essentially a rule becomes a particular kind of procedure that just happens to have all the queries in front and all the assertions at the back. Um, and also process constraint languages like PSL uh, basically put processes and rules on the same footing. And even if those syntaxes, the particular syntaxes of those languages might, might not be good for SMEs, the, the conceptual structure of them I think would be better uh, because they don't make such a rigid distinction between rules and processes. So um, the question is, uh, uh, I was very intrigued by Mark's presentation about the, the grassroots uh, movement going around OWL, and it, I think that's really great, um, and I hope it overcomes you know, the, these, these obstacles. But there's some question of whether that would actually happen and whether ontologies, I mean, are just going to run into the same problems that expert systems have. Um, now, I think uh, it's important somewhere on the roadmap of, these, uh, of this work to have something addressing uh, extensions and development of ontology and rule languages that are 
developed from the SMEs the, the viewpoint and, and, and with attention to their mental models. And uh, especially uh, the way that uh, subject matter experts think of things together, uh, whereas computer languages tend to think things apart. Um, and then I just, uh, there's just a few references if people want to look at things on slide 12. Weber and Shanks ACM models, uh, is that out of the 80s? Uh, no, these are more recent. Um, actually, some colleagues of mine pointed me to these papers. Uh, they're not actually so directly relevant, but they, they might be interesting. Um, and of course, I didn't think there's other things that I could have had a long list here. There, there's all the prototype-based uh, uh, software development itself and that sort of thing that happened at Sun that uh, Java overtook. Uh, the, the, there's lots of work in uh, prototypical instance-based languages. Once that uh, have a little more, they, they explore this middle ground between classes and instances where, where really roles sort of are and where I think the subject matters experts are, and uh, those also, I think, would be uh, important sources. Where's this work in prototypical instance spaces? Um, well, uh, the most well-known uh, work in that, I think, is the work at Sun on a language called Self. Um, but in general, uh, the, the prototypical instance space stuff, I don't know, it was late 80s, early 90s, I mean, you can Google on that sort of thing, but that's sometimes what people call those. For example, if an SME, uh, say, is building a rocket ship or a, a, a designing a rocket ship or a car or something, they actually think in their head as if they're working on an actual car. You know, it's an actual instance of a car. It's an actual instance of an engine, and they're and they're plugging these things together, and they don't think, oh, I'm plugging the engine to the wheel here, so. Uh, they don't think, oh, gee, that's going to affect a boat because boats don't have wheels. You know, they don't think about that. And if there is something class-like in what they're saying, for example, if, say, the weight of the engine has to be two times the horsepower, that you know, if they have some equation that is more constraint, which is a class-like thing to say because it's it's not about this instance; it's about all things in that class. They'll they'll attach it to that, and they have flexible ways of merging the class and instance information together. Um, and deal with it. Sometimes I've heard this called 4D because they think of well, okay, down the line there's actually a real car, an actual instance with, with a VIN number. And they're going to track the actual instances of parts there for how they wear, you know, for recall and that sort of thing. They'll think of that sort of as a, as a 4D thing over time. That the design is an instance, you know, the the, uh, the 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 refinements of that for manufacturing are an instance. The actual cars are an instance, and they have this. The classes are just so foreign to that way of thinking that uh, you tell them, oh, well, you know, we have to do these usages and these properties, and we're actually linking these prop values of properties to other values of properties. It's so confusing for them. So I think if we're going to reach that, that, you know, that goal of the open directory kind of thing that Mark was talking about, where SMEs are just logging in, and they're talking in their own language, and they're entering stuff, and they're talking to each other and not through a knowledge engineer, uh, something that would really scale to you know millions, uh, hundreds of millions of concepts. That um, we have to you know have this somewhere on the roadmap to to deal with the 
the well, I think of the mismatch between the knowledge languages and the and and the SMEs. Excellent, excellent. And it sounds like you're somewhat optimistic that you want to see some really uh, strong NIST related um, formalisms that you can use to leverage these uh, desired results of better languaging, better class definitions throughout the UML efforts and the uh, related HL7, for example, workshop that was held last week. So I think your presentation puts us up really nicely to a uh, Mark Wines presentation that looks at high top and some efforts that attempt to set some standards and some questions um, taking your concerns into the grassroots uh, through a large number of intermediary organizations. Mark, are you ready? Yeah, thank you very much. And the, the previous presentations were, were very insightful, were insightful and engaging for me. Um, the health information, the health IT ontology project group um, met first on September 23rd. And there's a, I'll say, a pillar of membership for the significance of the knowledge and experience they bring. In particular, um, it should be noted that the agencies uh, and their uh, responsibilities within them that are uh, that they bring to the health IT project group. Uh, it, the, the members of the group, uh, it's a fully uh, federal membership. Um, the Mike Fitzmaurice, I, and I, I think it's it's worthy of noting the um, the current participants. Um, as I say, the experience and the relationship they bring to project areas and resources supporting the nationwide health information strategy is is significant for the uh, ontology and semantic web tools communities. So Mike Fitzmaurice, the senior advisor to the director of the Agency for Health Research and Quality of HHS, is, is with us on the high top. Of course, Brand Nyman, Neiman, excuse me, Brand. Uh, I didn't recognize my name there. Um, it's Brand Neiman, the one and only. <laughs> Are you still on slide two? Uh, I'm, I'm leading into my slides. Okay, all right, okay, <laughs> you should be on. You're at slide okay. zero. Okay. This, uh, Nancy Orvis from the Department of Defense, who brings a, a wealth of worldwide DOD health IT uh, systems um, and data management experience. Um, Tom Rhodes and Ram Sharam are from NIST, and uh, Ram's office, of course, is providing leadership in the testing and validation of the major initiatives, projects, actions, uh, models uh, that are directed by Dr. Braver's office. Uh, also, David Witten of the Department of Veterans Affairs, the VA Medical Center in Houston, brings that corner of experience. So I'd say I call this a, a pillar of membership for the Federal Health Ontology, IT Ontology Project Group. Uh, the purpose of the introductory meeting uh, was to identify the goals and expected results 
of the federal high top group um, and that explain the experiences and interests related to innovations in the use of ontology software tools as they would relate to health IT actual applications and then decide the next steps to take toward effectively recommending tests of ontology software in key health IT projects. I'm going to um, uh, move to slide number 10 of the formal slide presentation that you may be looking at. Uh, in the first high top meeting, uh, the group reviewed some key ontology actions uh, supporting health IT project development. And uh, I've noted here that ARC of DHHS is funding $4 million with the federal, with the FDA and uh, $1.5 million with the National Library of Medicine to move critical drug safety information from the manufacturers to FDA using an HL7 standard format and content for FDA approval. Once approved, the information would be posted publicly on the daily uh, MED website for this function, and the project will continually improve the standardization of drug vocabulary and lead to improved patient safety and quality. So to summarize that, this is the effort to standardize uh, pharmaceutical drug terminology. On slide 11, uh, the Agency for Health Research and Quality is funding the National Library of Medicine with $2.4 million to undertake mapping of ICD-9 diagnostic codes and CPT for the procedure codes to SNOMED undertake a compilation of HL7 standards terminologies and incorporate them into NLM's Metathesaurus. So if we can go back in summary and look at the, um, the evolution of standards approval and adoption by the Consolidated Health Informatics Initiative uh, led by HHS which is now incorporated into the Federal Health Architecture Council's efforts. On the next slide, number 11, the Agency for Health Research and Quality is funding the National Library of Medicine with two point, uh, excuse me, I went the wrong way, didn't I? Uh, I did, the, uh, slide number 12, excuse me. The ARC is uh, funding CMS, Medicare and Medicaid, with $300,000 to build and maintain a metadata registry of terms in the Consolidated Health Informatics Standards that have been adopted by HHS, VA, and DOD as the principal uh, partners, the first primary partners of the uh, CHI. Um, again, stemming off of the, the e CHI eGov project. ARC is funding NIST with $300,000 to build and populate a website, a web-based land, landscape that shows who is doing what in health data standards in the U.S. So, uh, moving forward, uh, could I ask you a quick question, Mark? Oh, please, Conrad. 
I'm here. Is this ARC funding this NIST of 300,000 landscape uh, within MEL, or is that eHealth at NIST? Uh, I would... I would expect this would be an ITL, but this is sort of a ROM question. I, I did hear we got, um, uh, yeah, these are these are more ROM level questions. Um, yeah. Also, the University of Maryland has a Center for Health Information and, Sy and Decision Systems contract to build a similar roadmap of funding in seven categories. And they signed a contract with Hems to sell on an annual subscription basis this landscape of digital resources across the United States in great detail. Uh, who's doing what, where, with what resources, and with what results? And it sounds like there's a lot of overlap. Uh, between those, one being free, one being uh, for sale. Just an issue of, uh, I'm sure Mark uh, Wine is uh, aware of. I'm very happy that you brought that up to note the effort uh, there of that mapping with the university, between the University of Maryland and, and bringing that as a tool to, through the HIMSS Rio Federation, they're setting up there at the Hims Rio Federation an online dashboard of about around eight different functions that will uh, engage, help engage um, uh, potential partners and healthcare entities in the Rio developments across the country and knowledge sharing, uh, being able to learn more about latest innovations in health information technology to make use of those in their um, organization and uh, as well as technical project planning for building electronic health records, health information exchange systems uh, that are, would be interoperable uh, in standards-based open architecture. I'll be working more with the uh, Rio Federation to uh, facilitate uh, help coordinate and support these developments. So that uh, it's a, it's important that we note this relationship to the ontology development. Uh, that would be an opportunity, perhaps, for the ontology community to further engage uh, as a channel, uh, a connection network with the Rio communities. On slide 13, a NIST pointed out in our first federal high top meeting uh, that, uh, that for long-term robust, for long-term robust solutions, ontology tools will need uh, to be able to classify standards and describe how standards are related to each other. So these the previous mapping um, uh, and interoperability functions that we referenced in the previous slide in the slides um, are, are essential here. These mapping activities uh, relating standards and, and uh, to one another. 
And to build upon the work that CHI has accomplished in um, further refining standards or further identifying and building consensus for future standards that were left uh, for uh, further evolution and, and, um, and development through the standards of, uh, organization communities. Uh, understanding semantics will be essential to long-term solutions for interoperability uh, as semantic uh, and uh, interoperable soft and uh, ontology software uh, becomes uh, ready for testing in health IT major priority projects. Uh, NIST has proposals for a major interoperability test bed for healthcare ontology. The uh, high top group learned uh, sharing ontology tools, aligning different technologies and comparing ontology tools for overlap and dovetails. You know how that's being accomplished, the overlap and the gaps? Pardon me? You know how the gaps and the overlaps are being uh, dealt with at NIST? Uh, if our representative on the panel here from NIST has any insight into that yet, at the time, Rom was able to um, uh, more basically highlight that the F uh, highlight the uh, the goal at that early time. Excellent. Anyone else have an insight or comment to add on that from NIST on prog on early progress or objective? Well, presumably that would be achieved um, by translating these to some interlingua that covered all of them, uh, like first order logic or PSL or something like that, and then to get them on the same footing so you could actually identify which parts were overlapping semantically. And, uh, finally, in the, um, the actions uh, in, on uh, supporting health IT project development, the Federal Health Architecture Interoperability Working Group is identifying sets of data standards. Um, they're they're fur furthering work. Uh, further work needs to be done, as I mentioned, uh, to address mapping and CHI regarding implementation and relationships between standards. <laughs> and therefore, mapping of government is going to be essential as a driver, a leading edge driver in the the uh, most um, the most uh, accessible and affordable. Uh, and exemplary approaches to the use of standards for advancing interoperability chronic health record systems. Okay, on slide 15, are there any questions about that or would anybody like to add any further insights about ongoing actions uh, between ontologies, relating ontologies to health IT projects? Okay, uh, slide 15, the, the Federal High Top Group identified four major goals for its uh, work. Number one, develop a statement of mission for the High Top. Right now I'm, I'm beginning to plan, schedule the next High Top 
meeting, which will be, I believe, I've uh, recommended, I've suggested, November 22nd uh, for, for that meeting. And I'll be uh, preparing an agenda and plans for it um, week. The, the second major goal for High Top is to communicate collective knowledge, supporting usage of ontology tools. Number three, we're interested, the High Top group is interested in, in communicating with a larger audience uh, an important, the importance of, of promoting uh, and raising awareness for the understanding of, of, the, of how ontology software uh, would benefit interoperability not only across applications of uh, health uh, systems and databases within the healthcare sector, but um, long-range uh, promote interoperability, advance interoperability and standards applications across lines of business throughout uh, among the different sectors of the economy. And finally, the fourth major goal for High Top is to develop a roadmap on the state-of-the-art use of ontology tools to achieve semantic interoperability for these high-priority health IT applications. Ones that have been mentioned uh, include clinical decision support systems and electronic health record systems. Uh, I would uh, want to add also uh, the application of uh, electronic bribing, Mark, can I interrupt here? Um, uh, this Pat. I'm just concerned about the um, emphasis in this program on ontology tools. And, uh, and number four seems to be almost a contradiction in terms that emphasizing the ontology tools will allow you to achieve semantic interoperability. Semantic interoperability will be achieved only when you have a standardization of ontology content, regardless of the tools. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it's sort of like saying that you can achieve communication by standardizing your word processors. Well, you need a language that people understand. It doesn't matter what the tools are. Anyway. I, I understand your comment. One, one of the things that I think that, uh, that Mark is trying to do by bringing up the tools as a you know, component is because um, communication can't really happen if you don't have people speaking the same language and then still using the same, so to speak, uh, speech apparatus. Um, there's a lot of cases where you have a software that's running in uh, various kinds of environments that don't communicate because they don't have uh, not only just a common text format, but also an, uh, a common on online protocol. Um, if you focus solely on the static com uh, communication methods and you don't speak of the dynamic ones as well, you're missing a significant uh, component of a real-time uh, system. Now, there, uh, there's um, two points. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you say, okay, that, that you, the, you need the bitwise standardization of communication between computers in order to get at the semantics. Um, but that's the easy, the easy part, the standardizing on um, the format. A difficult part is standardizing on content. And the really, really difficult part is once you have your knowledge represented, figuring out how to use it effectively to solve problems. That's the tough part, and we haven't even gotten to number two yet, which is what concerns me. But in the larger sense, OnKit spent a 
two-year effort at formalizing and defining the problem using uh, Earl Meyer's catechism to some extent. So it's more the semantic interoperability of the meaning in an effort to formalize appropriate ontologies of tools that uh, both address the problem and are understandable by the people who understand the problem, understand the issues and the technical aspects from what we heard from Conrad and from uh, Shoot and Mark Houston earlier. So I don't think it's simply a tools uh, for the sake of tools. Uh, I think it's tools for the sake of semantic interoperability to achieve goals of national importance largely defined or attempted to be defined by about two years of Dr. David Brailler's uh, proselytizing. Yeah. That, as the analogy goes, if the if all you have a ha is a hammer, the world looks like a nail, but you still need nails to be able to hang up a particular picture in a particular room. So yeah, I, I'm totally in agreement world, right? with what was said before. I just wanted to make sure that uh, we do we do issue deal with issues in terms of binary communication methods and then uh, dynamic in communication. It, yeah. Absolutely, I, what you that that's that's the groundwork. Yeah, th this is Chris, and, and this whole question between tools and content, of course, rages continuously. I, I think those of us that have been grappling with this problem for the past 20 years have recognized that at the end of the day, you really need both. And let me give you two examples. Uh, the, the variation in human language prior to Gutenberg, uh, or the whole notion of printing and press and books, was actually quite large, and it reduced. It didn't go away. The web is actually homogenizing language even further. So you get the interplay between tools that allow semantic interoperability at some level, and, and well-formed ontology authoring tools are in that category. I mean, part of the problem is you can't create a language or standardize on a language absent tools that will permit it to scale and disseminate. It's, it's very easy to design a wonderful language that no one can speak. Exactly. But you still need the language or you can't communicate. Alan Rector's uh, two simple definitions, it's got to be useful and it's got to be usable. Mm -hmm. I kind of like that. I'm sorry to interrupt, Mark. <laughs> Back to you, sir. Everybody, that was, uh, that was a fruitful addition, a value-added set of Comments. I recognize Pat's voice and Mark's voice. Who was the other person speaking besides Chris? Uh, David, David was also speaking. I thought I, I uh, caught that. Thank you, David. This, the conversation you just had there, folks, was was essential. It's essential to repeat that in order to to keep in front of the ontology communities the groundwork that that must surge ahead. Especially when we're talking about health information systems, because uh, there, there's, a, there's a certain thing that we all have the same bodies, but the, the variety of, of problems that people have, the variety of interests that people have in terms of healthcare and biomedical type information, uh, you require tools to be able to keep track of the huge amount of information, as I think uh, Chris can, can elaborate on far more than I can. 
Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you, Mark. Uh, I'm going to um, go to the final slide of my presentation, moving from the four major goals of the Federal High Top Group to the four-step strategy for identifying high-priority health IT projects that would be collaborated with ontology software. Number one, the high top seeks to present a description of the goals for using ontology tools in health IT applications. Center for Ontological Research, the end. Um, I'm going to be interested in, in uh, learning what uh, might have transpired at the at the NCOR meeting on this. Um, the uh, strategy number two is to pick up from the major EGOV CHI vocabulary work referenced earlier in my comments in my presentation. Uh, the strategy will, uh, number three, seek to bring together subject matter experts on uh, the Consolidated Health Informatics body of standards with NCORE's um, leading subject matter experts. Number four, we'll seek to coordinate public-private partnerships for recommending, planning, and developing pro actual, actual work testing the use of the ontology software tools in high-priority health IT applications, such as decision support systems, uh, evidence-based and running through electronic health records, uh, interoperable with uh, health data repositories, other support functions. That's my address. And, uh, I hope it added value to the panel's meeting today. Thank you very much, uh, Mark. Any questions additionally to, uh, to Mark Wine before we move to uh, David Whitten's comments? Thank you again, Mark. I look forward to uh, the reports on your progress on ITOP and related issues. Uh, and David Whitten, sir? Well, Mark, uh, Brand, and, uh, and myself, David Witten, are all uh, interrelated to this governmental and intergovernmental groups, talking about, uh, from my perspective, a lot of the VISTA technology that already exists for health information, uh, health, health information technology. Uh, I'm not uh, I'm not someone who understands a lot of the policy as Mark does, but I can talk about some of the uh, specific issues having to do with uh, the it, how do you tie. Uh, ontologies into practice uh, in terms of a health information system. I, I think one of the, the things that everybody knows, but I'm going to just repeat it again, um, is that until you understand your audience, uh, communication really doesn't occur. You've got to uh, you've got to decide where uh, the audience has needs and where the um, where your communication, where you're trying to, to draw the conversation to go to. In the context of VISTA, it's a very large system. It has um, a, several different ways that uh, terminologies and ontologies are tied together in it. Um, one of the things that I personally am interested in is some of the issues about how do you tie these ontologies into a, a best practices approach. 
to uh, providing the computer system to people. One of the things that has been discussed earlier has been this idea of organizing uh, information about selection lists such in such a way that people can make a decision about a diagnosis or they can make a decision about a particular procedure that's being performed and have it be organized in a, a hierarchy of ideas. Um, and specifically to, uh, to make sure that when we record information about healthcare, that the information recorded is the information that's, uh, that's necessary for the care of people, uh, for recording of the history of that person's uh, care, and also uh, of side issues that uh, I'm sure insurance companies care about, which is uh, to make sure that they're reimbursing for the, uh, uh, appropriately for the kinds of care given and received. The VISTA system uses a system called the Lexicon, which is a ver variation of the uh, UMLS. In the, in the Lexicon, there's a lot of information about concept maps, major concepts. Um, anybody who's used the UMLS is familiar with this, but it's generally a, a large categorization of uh, different kinds of procedures and very different kinds of uh, problems that people may have. We also are tied to the uh, CPT codes that are available from the American Medical Association so that we can keep track of uh, the kinds of procedures that are performed uh, within the, uh, the level of granularity of, C of, of the CPT code system. There's different kinds of ways that uh, health information systems can, uh, and people that are, are practicing research on them, can be involved. One of the concerns is you have to understand the granularity level as well as understanding the, uh, the formality of it. Uh, when you have the CPT system, a lot of people are frustrated by it because it's not a very, uh, it's not a very low level uh, detailed granularity for some of the procedures. In the same way, um, you don't necessarily want all of your, uh, your computer systems to keep track of things at such a low level of granularity that all you have is instance-based reasoning. Um, for an example, if you, uh, you have uh, the recording that somebody is taking aspirin and you have the particular dosage and the particular route and the uh, particular form, you know, is it a tablet, is, is it being taken orally, is it, uh, is it an ointment, uh, the various kinds of ways that a, a medicine might be uh, administered, on the one hand, may be very significant. Um, for example, if it's an ointment, then it may, uh, may be the cause of an allergic reaction. Uh, if someone has a rash, it's going to be a lot more likely that uh, an ointment is going to cause that than if it's just something that they, uh, that they took orally. So if you, depending on your particular need and depending on your particular um, your, your, uh, audience's need, you, the level of detail and granularity depends. So again, when we're talking about this whole process of, of trying to tie an ontology into a technical system, if you don't understand the level of granularity you need, you don't understand your categories you're trying to use, then you can spend an awful lot of time doing things that uh, just a change of representation can dramatically, uh, dramatically affect the complexity of the problem. One of the, uh, the ways that the VA uses this uh, specifically is they have what they call drug-drug interactions, but they also have what they call drug-drug class interactions. So if you know that particular kinds of drugs interact with anything that is going to have a diuretic effect, then 
you can simply by using the drug class, then you can you can simplify a problem that involves taking one drug and comparing it against hundreds of different drugs, and you simplify it to comparing one drug to a particular drug class. This is tied to the whole the whole idea of organization, classification, categorization, which we're all familiar with in an ethology system. But the, the same way, you know, instance level reasoning sometimes does make a difference as was pointed out earlier when we were talking about cars and each car has its own wheels and its wheels are driven by an engine. But you notice even in his example, he didn't go into the details about the right, the right wheel versus the left wheel. He just grouped his, his wheels into front wheels and back wheels. If you, if you understand what you're trying to produce for somebody and you make sure that your representation matches the need, you still have to place that, you still have to situate that logic into an existing ontology, or you're going to be doing reasoning that doesn't apply or isn't, uh, isn't um, that, that it's fragile re reasoning. It's not going to be available for other processes that need that same kind of work. The other problem with categorization is just a purely a human issue. Anytime you have a categorization, you're going to have to have somebody who understands what the categories are. When you have a new element coming in, you have to understand how to categorize it properly. Are you, is this kind of categorization something where the relationship is only understood by somebody who's a logician, or is this kind of organization something that only makes sense if you actually are doing it, such as particular ways of drawing blood or particular ways of doing lab tests? You've got to make sure that your details don't overwhelm the person who's needing to use the information. One of the, uh, the typical ways of transferring information in hospital systems and clinical systems is a, a method called HL7. HL7 stands for high, Health Level 7. It's the application level on the, um, on the, the seven-tier architecture of OSI. When uh, you have two different instruments, both of which are communicating the information about perhaps a lab test that's been performed, they may sense uh, uh, HL7 information that's significantly different because the, the target audience, what they think that the person needs to know, is different. Now, granted, if they're both doing CBCs, consolidated blood uh, profiles, uh, red blood counts or white blood counts or something like that, those counts may actually be coming in the same message in the same place. But one instrument might actually tell more information about the methodology used to do the counting. Is it laser counting? Is it, is it by weight? Is it, uh, is it uh, you know, various kinds of, there's a lots of different ways that you can actually count red blood cells and volume and, and density and so forth. Um, you've got, so the HL7 messages may actually uh, reflect of the complexity of this particular machine's way of doing it. Or they may just be a very high level in saying, this is the name of the lab test and this is the value for the lab test. Of course, you know, when we talk about lab tests, we also have to talk about normal ranges, which is saying this particular value is coming in and according to this machine, the normal range is between 30 and 75 and the, the, uh, the high range that needs to be paid attention to is from 75 to 100 and the range that, uh, the a normal low range is between 0 and, and 23. These numbers are not specific to any of the lab tests I've talked about. I'm just trying to give the idea that you have, with your data values, you have this auxiliary information that's being sent. And it, depending on the particular physician, depending on the particular need, some of that information is relevant and some of it's not. So one of the things that we have to do when we're talking about transmitting health information 
is we have to understand the audience, the, the communication la language that we just finished talking about. We have to understand the tools that are being used to transmit this information. And we have to have some kind of consistent, if not an upper ontology, we have to have some kind of consistent general ontology that we fit these things into. Because if we don't have a general ontology that is, that is understandable by most people in this field, even if it's a very specialized ontology, if we don't have that generalized ontology, then we're tying ourselves to one particular representation that's coming from one particular device. So these are part of the tools that, that tying an ontology into the day-to-day -day processing of a hospital's uh, a healthcare record starts to, be, starts to become important. Is that, is this, was what I'm talking about clear, or should I continue? Uh, any questions? Why don't you continue them, Dave? Okay. So one of one of the significant things that we have to do when we're talking about communicating information and tying it into an ontological you know, framework is that we have to deal with what are our constraints, how are our constraints being represented, what how those constraints are being represented not only on the high level. Um, classificational system, but also how those constraints are being expressed in the day-to-day -day processing. There, there are times when, in the, in the processing, just having an ontology available or just having a, a, uh, a limited vocabulary available can help you significantly in your, in your processing of information to store it into a system. Uh, one of the classic situations, of course, is I've got a, a list of terminologies. Uh, perhaps a list of, I don't know, 3,700 different uh, drug names that are known to be related to fall risk. If I have all of those lists in one list, and then I just have an index into the list, I can actually store that index into my system rather than storing the full name and not lose any information. Now, what I'm doing there is I'm doing the classic trade-off between space and time. Is it, you know, is it better to store the number because I can use the number to retrieve the full name, so therefore I'm, I'm, the, the number takes up less room because, you know, in a number of, from 0 to 37,000 is still only five digits, so I'll only store five numbers at most. If I'm, if I'm storing the actual names of those drugs, those drugs' names may be 60, 70, 80, 90 characters long, depending on if they include dosage forms and depending if they include routes and all the classic issues that are involved in, in actually precisely naming a drug. So I can do this trade-off by storing an index and instead of the name, but what, what am I trying to do here? I'm, I'm not trying to use um, this index as a way of just saving space. I'm also trying to use this as a way of precisely identifying which particular drug has been administered so that I can do things like uh, interactions um, between the, uh, the incidence of falls and the, uh, the dosage form that a particular drug was, uh, was received by a patient. Uh, I'm, I may be using this information as a way of trying to track the, uh, the environment that the, that particular care component takes place. Uh, if, if, for example, I, I do some analysis and I find that the, a person is not taking any, any drugs that are uh, typically increased fall risk, but there's still a large percentage of falls, then either A, I've got to change my classification because there's some drugs that are not in my classification system saying that these are, are risked by a fall, or these increase the risk of falling, or I've got some other procedural issues that are involved that are taking place in a particular area that are increasing falls. 
uh, you know, you know, one of the obvious things being, you know, do you have sl um, slipper resistant to things on the floor? Um, do you have uh, trained nurses that are uh, taking people in and out of their uh, the beds, or are you depending on untrained aides? Uh, these kinds of things are are part of the real bottom level issue of how do you provide care and how do you provide it in a way that's consistent and that you know that you can determine what's going on in terms of the care in in that in that kind of environment there. So one of one of the things that is uh, mentioned mentioned earlier, and I, I want to reiterate, is this idea that people, and when you're talking about subject matter experts in general. People know their particular language they use to describe something. They understand their particular subject area, but they may not not be able to deal with other people who have different ways of classifying. If you do, if you talk about your typical pharmacist and you say, okay, I'm, I'm, I need to know the categories that drugs fall into, one of the natural categories may not be that these drugs are a fall risk. That's That's an operational definition about drugs. Um, it has, you know, the different reasons why a, a particular drug may increase the, uh, uh, the incidence of falling by a patient may actually be quite varied. One of them may be that it restricts blood flow so the blood doesn't get to their brain as well, but the other one may just be that it weakens muscles. Uh, it may be that, um, you know, that it's, uh, it uh, increases the need to go to the restroom, and as a result of that, the, uh, the person's getting in and up and out of the bed far more often than they would otherwise. Um, the any ontological system that does not provide methods to have these ad hoc operational kind of categorization systems is going to fail in a medical environment. It's going to fail in in a healthcare re recording type of environment. So, Dave, could you repeat that, please? Any ad hoc, any, any system that any system, any, any system that provides an ontological categorization system, right? So you're you're able to create categories. You need to be able to handle ad hoc categories. If you don't handle ad hoc categories, then what's going to happen is you're going to you're going to have to augment that system with some other mechanism to be able to group things together, just simply because this particular application needs it. That's the whole premise behind what we call aggregation logics. Okay. okay. And who is this? This is Chris. Yeah, Chris, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, excuse me, David. Yes. Yeah. Your point there about subject matter experts and your relate and relating that to the body of knowledge uh, interpretations, um, perspectives, um, degrees of uh, experience related to um, to the human body, depending on your your particular um, area or category of expertise clinical or, or otherwise here, um, what you highlight is that the challenge, the, the large challenge, just uh, to not, not only technically, but relating the technical to the, to the human factor in communicating um, common definitions, mm -hmm. what are common definitions, interpreting terminology. Exactly. Uh, and, and then building that up moving that, stepping that up hierarchically in, in phase development toward software and tools and integration of those with actual uh, health information technology applications. Um, you, you if just you don't take into account your, your audience, 
your tool will never be as effective as it needs to be. And I agree with you entirely. Continue. Go ahead, Mark. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's my point. That the the, the multi-layered uh, challenges and the depth of each one uh, impacting the next phase of this whole area of development with the end game advancing interoperability and standards in software that um, will help improve people's uh, will help uh, empower people's. Uh, um, ability to handle their own health care. Exactly. One, one of the classic, so to go into computer science for just a minute, one of the classic issues that comes up all the time in healthcare environments and healthcare computing that's not addressed very well in uh, training people in computer science or in programming or in computer engineering is the, the, the quantitative scale difference between information flow and, in, and the amount of information details that are required to keep track of in a health environment as opposed to something um, as such as, I don't know, uh, and doing the, the uh, stress analysis for architecture of a building. We, you know, a, a building itself, there, there may be a model there, there they may have some uh, way of describing how that building is going to build when, uh, can handle when it's actually built. But the, the huge variety of things involved in the human body increases your scale dramatically. Um, I don't remember the numbers, perhaps Chris does, but I know the foundational um, medical anatomy, which I think of as a, as a kind of an ontology, it's huge. It's got you know, thousands of terms and relationships between those terms. Chris, how big is that again? It's in the tens of thousands of concepts and the, and the hundreds of thousands of relationships. Exactly. So just as, you know, and it's not like they're just proliferating these relationships and these concepts just simply because they feel like making a large, uh, a large setup. This is trying to be an accurate representation of what's going on uh, in terms of human anatomy. In the same way, when you're trying to model what's happening in a healthcare institution, the institution may not have you know, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of, of people that are working there, but it would have quite a few thousands of drugs and of different lab tests and of ways that those things are interacting. Um, the effort of, of trying for some kind of common language to communicate what's already known is worthwhile. Uh, the, uh, the issue of this has been described in, in LOINC, which is L-O-I-N-C, which is a national classification system for laboratory tests, um, that tying those LOINC numbers to the laboratory tests done in a particular uh, environment by a particular company or by a particular hospital is important because when you, when you do those ties together, then you can have a standardized lab test that you can then compare to your standard drugs that you have. And you can, therefore, you can express the idea that when you take certain drugs, it's going to affect certain lab tests. So even though the lab test may, um, as was one of the examples, if you take a, a drug that increases the number of white blood cell counts that you have in your body, it, um, you, when you take a, do a lab, t a lab test for white blood count, if it's abnormally high, generally that's an understood to say that that means that there's an infection going on in the body. But if you actually know that they're taking a drug that increases the white blood count, then that can be an alternate explanation. One of, the, one of the things that we have to be aware of, 
especially when we're talking about computer systems that, that interact with healthcare professionals is we don't want the computer to be making decisions, but we do want the computer to be able to provide information to the care, care professionals so that the decisions that they make are made with the proper information flow. David, if I may comment and highlight your point there, that's, that's highly essential to, uh, for educating and in, uh, in, in supporting uh, new adopters of electronic health record systems and other information technologies, uh, especially as the sophistication, the integration of functions with clinical support, evidence-based, for example, comes into play in the field. This was this kind of um, issue was of supreme importance uh, five years ago in earlier days of um, implementation and training uh, for VA systems, not to speak for the VA, but uh, to relate uh, perspective from my experience then. Mm -hmm. And I can also chime in for many of the HIM CIO community. Uh, five years ago, uh, they saw technology as a uh, major solver without necessarily involving subject matter experts and patient viewpoints. I think they've become much more matured. Le uh, in, in leaps and bounds. And hopefully we'll continue. Um, I notice on my clock says we've got about four minutes left of our two-hour period. Is um, Brian still available? Yes, and I have one slide I posted. I knew that coming at the end, I would have to be very declarative and <laughs> I'm sorry, Brian. I didn't, I didn't we, have we, enough time to We talk. couldn't have a better man for the job. <laughs> Where is the slide, Brian? It's uh, linked in at the wiki there. Uh, at the bottom, uh, where Mark, uh, Peter posted Mark's comments, I guess. You see okay. it there? Do you see it? Brand Eamon's comments? Yes. So, it's under, <laughs> it's... Uh, opening that up on the VNC server. Thank you, Peter. Okay. Do I have the floor, Bob? Uh, I'm sorry, David. Let's move on. I'm sorry with Brand. Yes, please, sir. I'm, okay, I'm no, quite I, in favor of Brand taking on. <laughs> go for, go for it, Brand. <laughs> Thank you. you. You yield the balance of the time to me. Thank you. All right. In Washington terminology. All right. Be a congressional thing. Uh, as I said, associating with all these really professional, wonderful oncologists, I'm learning to be more declarative and uh, hopefully succinct and clear in my expression. I declared uh, uh, October as Ontology Month uh, at this government computer news conference. It didn't make the headline, but they're coming out with a nice story. Anyway, uh, the ONTAC work group is making very good progress under Pat and Dagobert's uh, uh, leadership, and uh, we have a draft work plan, which uh, will be discussed uh, next Thursday afternoon. Uh, we presented it to the Informatic Solutions Forum, Mark and I and Susan, and I proposed uh, there an avian flu ontology and information system pilot, which uh, Olivier and Mark have, have done some follow-up, I understand. They looked at what was in UMLF SN for avian flu, and then we discussed it at the NCOR meeting, and uh, it dawned on, uh, dawned on us uh, that actually 
they of course wouldn't change uh, what they have on avian flu in the UMLS uh, ontology unless new concepts appeared uh, associated with all the discussion that's going on or maybe a real pandemic. So we thought it dawned on us what we really might need to do was, was have a concept alert looking for new concepts uh, that would come uh, if there is an information explosion, if there is a pandemic. And actually now I got a proposal from from uh, Michael uh, Bellinger from JARG, uh, and he'll present that at our December 6th workshop that Susan and I are doing. At the GCN conference, there were two, two things that I learned. One was Eric Peterson, I thought, gave a very elegant presentation on, on doing an ontology for the data reference model. And he said, you know, we really would have to use OWL full to um, achieve fifth-order normalization in the way we treat structured data. So I said, if you look at that, get some feedback on that. That was a new revelation to me. Uh, uh, even more excitingly, we have cast about for a totally ontology-driven application and tools. And we found BioCAD and Visual OWL and Connor Shanky participated in the Encore event refer you to his work. Most importantly, coming out of the Encore event, uh, I learned from Barry that uh, there are a number of ontological problems in HL7. I think we would need more information, particularly Mark and I, if we're expected to take any any action or, or do any more in terms of bringing that to the attention of people who are funding that work. So I tossed that out uh, for more discussion. Uh, I really appreciated what Barry Smith uh, introduced in terms of principles for building biomedical ontologies. I'd refer you to his slide. And then, um, oops, I see I have a double entry there. And then he referenced this paper in, in genome biology. Uh, so I think I get the message how, how Barry and others are going to build higher quality ontologies and quality assure them. And I'm certainly all for that. I just uh, would put out the question to this group and others. Uh, are we going to have to apply, I think obviously we would have to apply these same kind of principles to, to ontologies in other areas. Finally, I was, I was uh, the winner of the giveaway for the book <laughs> there, Ontologies for Bioinformatics, which I couldn't put down after I got it. And we've invited uh, uh, Ken Blasky to present at our October 6th workshop. And this is in line with Pat and others were asking about not only building ontologies, but then actually using them. And uh, Ken and his co-author have, have uh, uh, put in their book even reasoning with ontologies under uncertainty in actual system applications, and they're calling that the Bayesian web. So I would call your attention to that. And that's it. Fantastic. What a um, tremendous two-hour session. We certainly have covered uh, the landscape from concept to tools to human response and very optimistic. I obviously uh, didn't perform my moderator role sufficiently with the time, but uh, that's life here in Ontology City. Uh, <laughs> I would like to open the uh, the floor to anyone who's got uh, some further comments. Uh, hearing none, I uh, uh, can, can I make one comment? 
Yes, please, Peter. Uh, I, uh, like uh, quite a few of us, I was at the Encore uh, event also, and I would like to sort of re resound one one of the uh, inaugural speakers, uh, John Walker from NSA, who was telling us sort of his whole life story on ontology, and essentially the sort of the the. Five, uh, the 30-second version of it is it started out with nobody understanding what ontology means to maybe people knowing, at least having heard the term, but doesn't care, to maybe approaching a time when, quote-unquote, he says everybody and his uh, mother-in-law is coming in and saying that they are providing ontology applications uh, or, and, or doing ontologies. Uh, obviously, uh, people would take advantage of any sort of uh, buzzword to do marketing or uh, extend their ulterior motives. But one thing I would love to see this group, which has, I think, uh, pride itself on its integrity and uh, the expertise we have on ontologies, that we keep disambiguating uh, what, and, and tell people exactly what we mean when we say an ontology, especially, I mean, now that people are fairly familiar with the whole spectrum, that we don't just uh, go in and say, I mean, I'm doing an ontology, but rather, I mean, are we, is this formal ontology? Is, it, is this informal, semi-formal? Uh, how are we representing it? I mean, in the context and so on and so forth. And I hope... Uh, this community as a whole, I mean, tries to sort of uh, uh, keep people straight. Okay. Clarity, consistency, disambiguation. It sounds like a good uh, entree to our next several presentations of the Analog Forum. And again, I'd like to thank everyone for attending forward to a continuing dialogue and an introspection on this important topic. Okay. Thanks again. Thank Good you. Night. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye -bye. <laughs>